Give him a big hand. Come on. So, Ralph, would you come forward? Ralph is the consummate church planter. And he knows about the kingdom. And he works, um, you know, tirelessly, even now uh, at his age. Should I tell, should, can I tell your age? 80-something also. 80, 84 plus. Look at him. <laughs> I was telling him how handsome he is. I, I, I think the highest of this man. So, Ralph, thank you for your godly work in the city. Thank you for helping to give birth to uh, Lion of Judah. Oh, and so we honor goodness. you this morning and Judy as well. And we thank you for being a friend of the city and being a friend of the kingdom as well. Oh, so yes. Why don't you lead us? He's going to be reading from his book, actually. He has a book <laughs> on church planting, which is more than church planting. I'm sure it's just the principles of the kingdom behind yeah. church planting. So he's going to be reading from excerpts <laughs> from that book. So yeah. thank you, brother. Thank you for being here. Please own this place and let the Lord lead you this morning. Oh, my goodness. What a special time to be here with all of you folks. His story, history, God's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. Talked about that history, but it's his two S's, his story. And that's what we're talking about, his story. And I've been here 52 years. Uh, I would have gone to Harlem if they got my letter, because of Martin Luther King Jr. I was pastoring in upstate New York for 10 years, and I felt, man, we gotta. Nobody's white. I'm a light black compared to real white. <laughs> but I felt called to Harlem. I wrote him a letter. I never heard back. So that's why I became a missionary to come. I, was, I thought I was going to go to Chicago because that's the only place that Mission's Door was in those days. But conservative Baptist, as I w you just heard. And I expected it to be Chicago. And they said, hey, where do you want to go? I said, you're giving me a choice? They said, Boston. My father was born in Cambridge in the late 1800s, my own father, not my great-grandfather. And uh, they said, Boston, it is. And I was raising money, and I was going to go down to raise money and, uh, um, to, for, to go to Harlem. And I wrote to a church down there that wanted a pastor. I never heard back, so I became a missionary. And when they pointed me, they said, where do you want to go? And I said, I expect it's going to be Boston, I mean, uh, Chicago. And they said, well, you got a choice. I said, whoa, all right, Boston. My father was born in Cambridge. And uh, so they said, Boston it is. And uh, then I was raising money, and my car broke down, and I got on a bus to get up to upstate New York to raise money. And uh, it turned out there were some people from New York there to sing. And I had to go down to New York to raise money, not Harlem, but a different part. So I asked if I could get in their car, and they said, sure. And as we got in and started riding, they said, why didn't you answer our letter? And I said, I did. And they said, well, many times money was stolen out of that, you know, they had outdoor mailboxes out on the street. They said time, many times people stole, they opened that to see if there was money in the, in the mail. So apparently that's what's happened. And that's what got me to Boston. And that's what got me to marriage. Judy. <laughs> Actually, my wife, Joanne, she gave her life, I think, to Christ. We were married 25 years. She was having all kinds of uh, physical, you know, and the South End in those days. And that's when we were in the midst of uh, getting the church over in Cambridge going. 
and we called it Cambridge Port, because in the old days it was on the port, the ocean, <laughs> or the river, I should say. That's why we call it Cambridge Port Baptist. And my own, uh, 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 my, my uh, <clears throat> uh, daughter's husband and my own son worked on that building. And in some ways, Joanne gave, uh, Joanne gave her life for Christ because she probably would have passed away anyway. But because the South, you know, it was, it was tough in those days. And uh, so I would like to say she gave her life for Christ. So anyway, uh, that, and so it's so good to be here. I feel God's presence here in a huge way, in a huge way. And I think things are getting tougher and tougher in Boston for God's purposes. And so when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You, keep, you don't quit. <laughs> in fact, you know, I was here a couple of weeks ago at this church for the Boston United Worship Service to be led basically by uh, Elijah Kim. And of course, Roberto, Pastor Roberto was one of the speakers. But as I was just coming in that, a couple of weeks ago downstairs, uh, someone said, hey, I've seen your big book. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, not sure how he saw it, but he had seen this. And he said he was kind of glad to see that. And so that's why I'm going to focus on this <laughs> right now. Um, he had seen it, and so that's why I'm going to focus what, on what I call Chapter 6. And uh, to me, it's churches, planting churches, planting churches. And a church is not a building, it's people. Someone becomes a, Christ, someone becomes a Christian, and then maybe somebody in their family, neighbors. I'm always a neighborhood-focused kind of guy. Seven-day-a-week kind of Christian faith. And uh, so... Uh, um, that, and then, but sometimes you need a building. And, of course, that's the story. So what I'm going to do now is to talk about this uh, big book. And I've got a few. If anybody wants one, I'd give you one free of charge. So I'm just going to read from Chapter 6. And it's stories embedded in the graph. And South End Neighborhood Church, but it was neighborhood-focused and we wanted to start another church in a different neighborhood. And in every case, somebody from that church maybe started another church, or maybe two or three people from that church. Or sometimes it expanded, you know, it went beyond that, I guess you could say. But this is the story of churches planning churches. And so what I'm talking about is you. How can you reach someone for Christ? And they become a Christian, and then you have a group, and that's what I call church planting. It's like having babies. It's having babies. And then they have babies, grandchildren. So what we call, so I'll just kind of spend what little time I should on this big book. And if anybody wants one, I'll give it to you. We call it South End Neighborhood Church, and then we added the word Emmanuel. It did seem to make sense 
since in the context of the South End. I moved into the South End in 1971. A clearly defined and socially distressed neighborhood in those days. And this became recognized retrospectively, since atomically to be able to birth daughter churches. And so this is churches starting churches. So number one, a highly focused neighborhood church. And it doesn't have to be neighborhood church, but I'm just you know, mentioning that, that right now because of what, how South End Church started. It was a church plant that was narrowly focused on a single square mile of, of uh, 30,000 residents that constitutes the South End of Boston. If a person didn't live within that, this one square mile, or was already attending another church, we wouldn't take them from another church. We quite literally did not let that person attend or become part of South End Neighborhood Church. That policy forced us to stay focused on our primary reason for starting the church in the first place, to reach through evangelism those living in the South End who were not already in a church. The policy focused us to develop the latent leadership skills of all the people. This policy was followed, as I remember it, almost without exception, and was absolutely fundamental for everything else we did in the development of South End Church. Second, its church was built on the backs of the church's small groups, and I think I've seen small groups here in, a, in different ways built on the back of churches' small groups. We often had more people attending small groups throughout the week than we did on Sunday worship services, a solid indicator of a sound missiology of congrevangelization. At one point at South End Church, when I was still pastor, we were averaging 90 on Sunday mornings, and we were running up to 140 in small groups during the week, like on Tuesday night or Saturday morning or whatever, different homes. If a person became part of a small group, they became part of the church. If they did not become part of a small group, in most cases, they never became part of the church. It was as simple as that. When we had a visitor on a Sunday, I did my best to link that visitor up with a small group leader before either of them left the building, asking them to work out details as to how that visitor could attend that small group before the next Sunday even rolled around, and to report to me or the, we had in those days, a small group coordinator within the week as to the success or failure of the effort. So I'll just say this in my mind. Nothing is more important for building a new church than effective small group programs. Third, a tolerant church. I was preaching on the subject of forgiveness. In the midst of the sermon, Timothy, a socially maladjusted young man, and Eunice, an alcohol brain damaged woman on the furthest side of middle age, got into a fight and they were in a panic 
and literally rolling around on the floor right there during the service, scratching and screaming at each other. I happened to notice the commotion. It was a small room and a seating capacity of about 70 people. I was, was used to disruptions in the service sometimes, and I always usually kept plugging away. So I paused in my sermon, asked Bob, Bob, Bob Anderson, Lorraine's husband. I asked him, as he was one of the elders, if he would take the two of them downstairs and, quote, work things out. <laughs> when they were ready, they should come back upstairs and rejoin the congregation. And so I finished the sermon, and we were just about ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together when Bobby Anderson, Timothy, and Eunice reappeared the former combatants red-eyed because they cried and forgave each other and imploring the forgiveness of the church. Of course, it was quickly given, and we had the Lord's Supper, which we just had a minute ago. <laughs> if I had staged the event for dramatic effort, <laughs> I was preaching for forgiveness. <laughs> I couldn't have stated better. We saw forgiveness played out without, re without reserve in the real world of flawed humanity and tolerant, accepting Christianity. The big things matter, the little things matter not at all. Number four, keeping our eye on the big picture and persevering. Old timers at South End Church still speak of the day we became a real church. The congregation was an overnight retreat at a Bible conference some two hours drive from Boston. Two hours drive up, two hours drive back. In the course of the retreat, one of our men, who had a drinking problem, became acting out in a most disruptive way. Some in our small group had spent endless hours over several years befriending Joe and discipling him, in many cases at personal cost and sacrifice. There was a very definite difference of opinion by the church leadership present that day as to how to handle this situation. Some of us insisted on, quote, tough love be applied in no uncertain terms. Others felt uh, equally strongly that a more gentle approach was required. A decisive moment had come. In the midst of the leadership's ongoing discussion, uh, Joe, the guy, stormed off, <coughs> got into his great big car with all its fins and all of its chrome and fins and drove back to Boston all by himself. We had gotten way up to that Bible conference grounds by jamming people into the few cars church people owned in those days. And Joe's big car had carried more people to the conference than any other car that went up there. 
And of course, he drove back all by himself. So I had to make two trips back <clears throat> to Boston to get everybody back. That meant living, leaving some people at the Bible conference to await the second trip. In my second, in my absence, one man who wore a black patch over his missing eye pulled a dagger and scared the Bible conference staff after death. Reasonably enough, they never invited us back again there. <laughs> Though the church leadership never did agree as to that approach, whether we should have been tough or tender, we should have taken with Joel. We as a group knew the important thing was to hang together as a cohesive leadership if we were to build a gutsy church in a chaotic, in a chaotic Boston. That was the day, we said, when sent, uh, Sense <laughs> became a real church. I'll just read two or three more things. Is that all right? Optimistic. An adult Sunday school class had just ended, and I, and I wasn't in that class. We had three or four classes, I guess, and I was the pastor there at South End Church. I think, well, wherever it was. <clears throat> I guess it was South End. Yeah. Um, so the class had ended. I bumped into Sarah as the, we were all transitioned to this, from the Sunday school to the church worship service. Ralph, we just told Catherine that if she went and got her master's degree, we as a church would pay for it. I gulped. <laughs> because just a Sunday before, we had led our church's annual business meeting, and we had all struggled to adopt an annual church budget of ten, of $12,000. Sarah told me the class thought, in the Sunday school class, that it, the, the church, uh, it would cost 4000 for Catherine to get the master's degree. $4,000 was equivalent to 33% of our total church budget. I said, okay, anyway, and asked Sarah to tell me what this was all about. Turned out that in the course of that Sunday school discussion, it came out that black children in South Africa were not being taught mathematics in their schools. Why not, someone had said. That was back in the day of apartheid in South Africa and the difficulties blacks faced in trying to get a master's degree education were such that no blacks had the degree. Therefore, there was no one to teach the teachers as far as math was concerned. Well, you're in Boston, they said in their class, Catherine, and you already have a, master, a bachelor's degree why don't you get the master's degree while you're here, and we, the church, will pay for it? And so that's what happened. And then a little while later, we all went down. They had the graduation right down at Boston Garden to attend, to attend their graduation ceremony. And we all cheered lustily as she received the degree. We were told by two or three people acknowledgeable about South Africa, 
that she may very well have been one of the first blacks, if not the first, to receive such a degree. Those were the days before the Archbishop Tutu Fund. And when Catherine and Shepard returned to South Africa, carrying a good feeling in their hearts about the Christian faith as they had experienced it in Boston. She taught teachers, and her husband became a national leader in the post-apartheid government. South End Church was the last church in the world one could have expected to be able to pull off <coughs> such a coup d'etat, <coughs> little as much when God is in it. Playfulness. God plays, Proverbs 8.32. And God's children are a playful people. We shouldn't take ourselves too seriously, we thought, at the South End Church. South End Church had the church yell. I have been, released, I have been recently told that my wife, Joanne, we were married 25 years before I passed away, originated this practice probably in cahoots with co-conspirator conspirator Judy Hall. Every once in a while, the congregation would jam itself together in a great big huddle, and everyone would let out a great big yell and scream at the top of their voices, probably jumping up and down as we did and scream at the top of their voices, probably... Uh, carrying out the scream for several minutes. Well, probably everybody didn't scream very loud. Some, I'm sure, were a little reluctant. Life was stressful in the South End in those days. Almost every Sunday, someone had a story about being mugged that week, and there was a lot of pent-up anxiety to be released. What better way to let it all out than in the context of a playful, Period of God, people of God. A little primal screaming probably never hurt anyone. Playful, seriously playful. Any church planting veteran will tell you, so for for healthy church. <laughs> Racially diverse. The church was on retreat again this time at a wonderful inn in Vermont. We call it Mrs. B's, as we called her. Let, and she let us come to her inn just about any time we wanted to, free of charge. She never charged us. It was a big, immaculate, beautiful place, high up on a hill, in a rural setting such as only Vermont could provide. It attracted skiers in the winter, Writers and, art, writers and artists in the summer. Dirt road, stone walls, maple trees along the walls, Mount Snow and the Green Mountains clear in the near distance. We loved to go up there. We had taken a break between Bible study sessions and five of us went for a little walk back over the hill, down the dirt road 
a third of a mile or so. Time to retrace our steps. So we five turned around and started back up the hill toward the inn. It was a foggy day. We were walking into the midst. Four were in front of me. I was bringing up the rear. They were two on two. Two, two, and me. One behind them. And as we walked up and I watched them, I suddenly got all choked up. I realized I was looking at a Bible promise given me many years earlier that was now being fulfilled before my very eyes. In that case, years earlier, well, a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago that I went to, God had given me one clear, cold winter night, this verse. Call unto, this is from the Bible. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not. That's from Jeremiah. That verse, it kept coming back to me over the years, even over a decade and a half. And I kept wondering what it meant for me. And now I knew. <clears throat> and, and, and now I knew. While we were on that retreat in Vermont, Boston, back then, was in chaos. It was the 1970s, and court-mandated busing. And one of the women running for our current mayor was right in the back of that. Maybe some others were, too. Was right in the midst of court-ordered busing of schoolchildren intended to achieve a semblance of racial equality in the public school system. That was underway. Resisting it, the city was nearly two years in, a, in an uproar. In fact, my own son was supposed to go over to South Boston. He was right, we were right smack in the middle of that. Racial hatred and racial violence in Boston was rampant. And what I saw before me was this. The deaf, mute Quebecois was leading the blind British woman by the arm. Behind them, the crippled Micmac Indian, who was part of our church, who was successfully fighting alcoholism, was leading the severely retarded black man by the arm. A few birds were singing, and the few were having a marvelous time. A marvelous time. Can you believe that? Over time, the deaf, mute man and the blind lady had devised a way of communicating a little bit between themselves. As together we climbed up and helped each other climb up through the mist and back to the congregations of the congregation of God's people. What a contrast. 
What a blessed contrast to what was going on in our racially hate-filled neighborhoods back in Boston. I was seeing God's long-ago promise to me that I would see great and mighty things. God at work in our necessitous world. A place of restorative justice, number eight. I still marvel at this one. Two mothers, longtime friends, were regular attendees and members of South End Church. One day, the son of one woman murdered the son of the other woman. Yet those women continued to attend our church together. And I guess without missing a single Sunday, if I recall that correctly. Supporting each other in a dark and horrible time. That's what the Bible calls restorative justice. And maybe I'll end with this one. It was on March 1, 2006. And in fact, I was working on this book. I was in the midst of working on this book, and I got a letter, an email. It wasn't a letter, it was an email. And this, this is what the email said. It said, hi, Key, hi, capital K-E-E, my name is JJ. 30 years ago, you knew me as Coco from 23 Wellington Street. Now, I live at 21 Wellington Street. For, you know, between our two buildings is about from here to that black thing. <laughs> That's about the dit from 21 to 23. So that's where he lived, Coco. He said, I just wanted to say hello and thank you for what you and your family did for all us kids back then. The one time I remember is accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior in my basement. He said, in your basement. It's his letter. But it's my basement. Where my, where my office is. It wasn't until eight years ago that I realized what that meant and how much that changed my life. I always knew that something changed in me that day, and it wasn't until I joined the church I am currently attending that I realized what it was. You have always been in my thoughts and now in my prayers. It was nice seeing your picture online. Say hello to Dana and Doreen, my daughter and son. I hope they are doing well. Thanks again, and God bless. And he gave me his email. So he accepted Christ as a kid. Didn't get into church for several years. But he knew he'd become a Christian. I do remember Coco. 30 years ago, a little kid living next door on the street, where I still live, and where Joanne and I raised our two kids. I think it was called Coco because everybody knew he loved to eat the breakfast cereal called Coco Puffs. <laughs> One Sunday season, our house actually was broken into four different times. Thring, uh, things thrown around and things taken. My wife Joanne was struggling with cancer at that time and the break-ins added further stress to our lives. 
when we got home one day and found one of those break-ins, we found our Cocoa Puffs cereal. We had that. <laughs> Box on our kitchen table, along with a spoon and a bowl that had the tracings of milk and Cocoa Puffs in the bottom of it. <laughs> you can understand what many of us suspect that the kids next door were the culprits. <laughs> Encouraging you know who, who was the youngest. So you can imagine my pleasure at seeing Coco's email to me some 30 years after the fact to learn from Coco how we never forgot that simple presentation of the gospel made to neighborhood kids in our cellar. How that memory stayed with him and he says, changed his understanding, changed, I guess, everything in his life, and remind, to be reminded again of why I and my family moved to Boston in the first place. So God called us to Boston. God called you to Boston. And God's calling all of us to keep doing what we can. I'm 85, but I... Plan to live another hundred years <laughs> and do what God wants me to do. <laughs> Thank you for having me come and share my thoughts. I'm more than grateful. <laughs> Don't go yet, Ralph. I, 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 we want to pray for you. We want to bless you and acknowledge your extraordinary work um, in this city. Uh, you know, your, your presentation reminds us of authenticity and, and of how God can use simple things, small communities, unpretentious, uh, to work uh, His goodness on the city, to live in the city with goodness. And um, just as you have blessed us, Lion of Judah, you know, and, and here we are, this, this, continuing this work of the city this place and and you have been instrumental and others that have rallied around you you have been instrumental in facilitating making possible this these amazing communities that are now in many parts of the city and like in the work of coco who knows how many people have entered the kingdom because of your work and the work of a south end uh, church and uh, we we thank the lord because you know we live in a in a world right now where um, glitz and shiny uh, things are what calls our attention. Um, and the temptation of many churches is to hide the imperfections, to always present the good, good face and to always appear in charge and doing well and being triumphant and so on and so forth. And sometimes God works through the brokenness. Uh, and that, that image of those four people walking in that Vermont uh, countryside, I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's an incarnation of the gospel. How God uses brokenness to, you know, make His light shine. And many of the great things that happen in the city, we never see them. But God is work, working. God is at work in extraordinary ways. And we have to learn to respect and to love and value simple things, authentic things, genuine things. Because that's really where the Lord most loves to work. And I hope that that's an example for us. As I hear you here this morning presenting your work from your book, I'm reminded that we need to be humble, uh, we need to be simple before the Lord, and we need to work in ways that, you know, may not, many people may not see it, 
but we have to be willing to do the work of the kingdom and God sees it and God blesses us publicly when we do great things for his kingdom in secret so let us learn these lessons I think it's a, it's a great uh, moment for us as a church uh, Ralph and we thank you I thank Judy for all that she is to me helping me keep going Amen. It's, it's corporate work. Amen. And Lorraine, whose work you also blessed, and how she worked also later on to become a pastor in the Brighton area as well, to engage a lovely, lovely community there as well, doing God's kingdom. So people, let us learn that. Even as we speak of power and of greatness and victory, let us know that God also works through brokenness and through small things as well. And let's be willing to pay attention to that still small voice of the kingdom. So I'm going to ask uh, Brand, who's also a veteran of the kingdom as well, and to let's 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 stand. And Judy, would you would, would you just stand also as well? We we want to pray for you as well. And uh, maybe uh, you can just come forward a little bit in sign of uh, you know step, stepping out of the that, that whatever to whatever degree you want. That's fine. That's fine. Let let's extend our hands. And, and I'm going to ask Brand also. Yes. yes. Of course, please come and, and join them as well. Yeah. Thank you. I I never got your name, and I do apologize for that. But please, please, you you are absolutely welcome here let's extend our hands to these godly men and women and Lorraine please come as well come on <laughs> come as well and just uh, receive the, the blessing of this congregation as well friend yes. we do thank Father for this this moment of reflection this moment of valuing those who have gone before. Hearing the stories of the sacrifices, of caring for the broken, the people who are mute, the people who are blind, the people who are addicted. Father, we're so grateful for how you have how you have used Ralph Key, Judy, Lorraine, Emmanuel Gospel Center through the years to be a station and a place of accomplishing and fulfilling your purposes. So Father, yes, we do pray for Ralph. We are grateful for him. We ask for your sustaining, undergirding in these years as he's moving into the senior season of life. But Father, more than anything else, Lord, we, we receive from his heart an impartation that causes our spirits to be able to make room to walk the path that he has walked. We're in a different time. We think that we're in somewhat better seasons than the tumult that was there, but in the 70s, particularly in the busing riots and, and those overwhelming seasons in, uh, in Boston's history. But Lord, we're in the midst of another one. And we need the same kind of heart we need the same kind of sentiments. We need the same kind of honest simplicity and commitment to your claims, to your kingdom at work. 
So, Father, we thank you. We thank you because we receive from this man a pioneer in faith to this city. And, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Your word says, give honor to whom honor is due. And Father, we thank you that we, in simply making room for Ralph to be able to open his heart and share, we receive the impartation. We rejoice in it. We let it come in. We receive the infilling of your spirit through what you have planted in him. Thank you in Jesus' name.